My youngest daughter and I were drawing pictures several weeks ago, and I was drawing the sun, and uh, I decided to draw it red because it's been so hot. And uh, Katie looked at what I drew, and she said, "Dad, uh, the sun's not supposed to be red. It's supposed to be yellow, like your teeth." And I began to wonder why the Lord made children so honest, as I called my dentist. <laughs> Some questions, though, just don't have answers. When they grow up, we say they have tact, or we learn tact, where that's not appropriate to say something like that, even though it's true. Um, but as children, though, we wonder at their honesty. A lot of questions in life don't have good answers. Like, how can I be a unique person if everybody else is too? How, can, how come it is when I blow in my dog's face, she doesn't like it when we hop in the car, the first thing she wants to do is stick her head out the window? Why don't sheep shrink when it rains? What'd you say, because? If uh, Teflon doesn't stick to anything, how do they get it to stick to the pan? Have you ever sat and thought about some of this stuff? Some of the questions in life, truly, we don't have answers for. On the driver's license of bald men, what does it have for the hair color? I won't call on any of you, to, but I'd be real interested to find out the answer to that. No one told me first hour. Well, some questions that don't have answers are a lot more heart-wrenching than the ones that I've made light of. Why is it that a member of my family, you might ask, dies in a car wreck when the drunk driver that caused the wreck walks away with just getting their hand slapped? Why is it that God gives me passions in life to do certain things for Him, but it seems that He is the one that sets up the most roadblocks to cause those passions to be fulfilled? Why is it that those who can have children a lot of times don't want children and those who can't have children want them more than anything? What is it about these questions? In this life, they are unanswerable. But if, if this life that we live is all that our existence exists of, is this mere 70 or 80 years if we're strong enough to live in this life, then our God must be the devil because he's promised things that we don't receive in this life. And we die with his promises unfulfilled, many of them. And yet if this existence is merely, if this life is merely a fraction of our existence, just a portion of it, if there is more to our existence than this mere 70 or 80 years, then we can reconcile God's unfulfilled promises. As the Bible teaches us that there is hope beyond the grave. And as we die with God's promises unfulfilled, we know that that can be reconciled because His promises are fulfilled even after we die. I'd like for us to look today in Genesis chapter 50. 
The last chapter of Genesis is the last chapter in our story of Joseph and our last message in our series on holding on tight to your dreams. And the ultimate expression of holding on tight to those dreams, or we know in Joseph's case his dreams were the promises that God made him, the ultimate expression of holding on tight to God's promises is doing that even when you die. Today we see two deaths, the first of which we're not going to really spend a lot of time on, Joseph's father Jacob, and then Joseph's own death, which we'll look at a little more in depth. But just to summarize the first part of Genesis 50, we're not going to read the first 13 verses. It speaks of Jacob's death, the last part of chapter 49, and the first part of chapter 50 speak of the father, Jacob. He dies and he tells his son, Joseph, and all his other sons to not bury him in Egypt where they are, but rather to carry him up and to bury him in Canaan where they're from. And so Joseph and the brothers do this. They carry their father's body up and bury it in Canaan. And now we pick up the story in verse 14. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged us, or your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say, you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. I think one of the saddest emotions that we can feel in life is being misunderstood. To truly try to express your heart to somebody with your best effort and to have your best effort fall short is so discouraging because you can't do any more than your best effort. How frustrating it must have been for Joseph. Now he, his brothers having lived at this point in Genesis 50 with Joseph in Egypt for 17 years and now the death of the father and come to find out for 17 years there's still something between them. Seventeen years ago, Joseph had forgiven them of the evil that they had done, and yet the father's death gave an opportunity to show the true colors of these brothers once again. They couldn't believe that Joseph had forgiven them because they hadn't forgiven themselves. Their father's death obviously was a showed why they thought Joseph had, quote, forgiven them earlier. It's almost as if they thought that Joseph said, I forgive you so that he wouldn't hurt his dad. But now that his dad's dead and out of the way, they feared that the true Joseph might come out. And so they send a message to him. They don't even have the courage to go to him to his face initially. They send a message to him with a lie and say, please forgive us for what we did. Or they say, the father said, please forgive me forgive us. And the father never said that. This was all a concoction. 
It's interesting to me that they ask for forgiveness by means of a lie, which is so ironic. And we're told that Joseph wept. Joseph knew that the father hadn't said that. The father knew that Joseph had forgiven. Joseph truly had forgiven 17 years earlier. You know, I think it's harder sometimes to forgive ourselves than it is for others to forgive us. Especially when we think about our relationship with God. Sometimes it gets really hard to forgive ourselves. Because while you may apologize to somebody else whom you've offended, they don't know the depth at which you sinned against them in your heart. You may have merely lied, but what was the deep down motivation for your sin against them? Only you know the depth of your sin. Only you and God. And so when you realize that you are a sinner and you hear one day the great news that though you are a sinner, the Lord Jesus Christ loved you so much that He left the praise of the angels and came down and lived a perfect life and died a death that He did not deserve for you. He died in your place as your substitute. And the good news is that though you're a sinner, your sins can be forgiven by placing your faith in Jesus who died and rose again on your behalf. And yet once you've done that, and perhaps you have a few years now under your belt as a Christian, it's funny how the devil will like to remind you of your past and try to remind you or try to make you think with false guilt, you know, you really didn't place your faith in Christ. Otherwise, you wouldn't be having this guilt that you have right now. You really are a worse sinner than you realize. Christ didn't die for you. He died for everybody else, but you're an exception. You are really bad. You've already asked the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And by virtue of what the Scripture says, that whoever asks, whoever places their faith in Jesus you are immediately as righteous in the sight of God as the Son of God who died for your sins. His righteousness becomes yours by faith in Him. And yet, we come before God and ask Him again and again and again to forgive us of the same sins. I think God's response is often like Joseph's. It grieves Him that we don't accept the peace that forgiveness ought to bring. The whole reason that Joseph forgave them 17 years ago is so that they could live together in peace and come to find out all this time they've had this, this skeleton in the closet that they still really felt that Joseph hadn't forgiven them. And so they've got to come and grovel at his feet just like they did the first time. That's why Joseph wept to have 17 years of unnecessary guilt now, I don't know how many years perhaps you have lived as a Christian if you have placed your faith in Christ. But I hope that you will mark today on your calendar as the day that you will quit listening to the lies of the devil that tells you you're not forgiven. And that if you don't continually re repent of the same sin over and over, that the salvation that you got by grace you can lose by works. To me, that's the biggest heresy on the market today. And it strikes so close to the heart of the gospel. That is that you can lose by works 
that which you gained by grace. Forgiveness you received by grace through faith. You cannot lose it by anything you do, or it is not grace. Grace with strings attached is not grace. It is legalism. And it is not of God. Paul said in Galatians that anyone who teaches a gospel other than the one that we have we have taught you, let him be damned because it is a false gospel. It is by grace through faith that you're saved. Don't listen to the false doctrine today that teaches you you've got to add a perfect life to the perfect life that Jesus has already lived for you. I hope that these brothers at this point were at peace with themselves and finally accepted the forgiveness that Joseph offered them. And I hope that you will no longer listen to the lies of the devil and accept the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers you. We have peace with God because of what Christ has done. No need to feel the guilt and shame any longer. Joseph's answer to their request for forgiveness is one of the greatest classic theological statements in the whole book of Genesis. Look at what he says in verse 19. He gives us a great principle. First, I'll read the, the principle is that hardships are our opportunities to demonstrate faith in a sovereign God. Look at how this is demonstrated. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Literally, he spoke to their heart. There's a true story of, a, of an Indian. His name was Squanto. He lived in the early 1600s. In fact, he was kidnapped from the East Coast where he lived and he was taken to England. And there in England, he was made to learn English so that he could be interrogated or he could be asked about where the settlements were of Indians in the New World so that when the colonists were to come over, they would know where to go. And so the Squanto for nine years lived in England and learned the perfect king's English and was able to speak it correctly. He was told he would be able to go back and on the way back, the, uh, you might call the first mate, the, cap the second captain in charge, betrayed Squanto, he is an Indian and all the other Indians and sold them all as slaves. And so for another five years until he was rescued by some monks, Squanto was a slave and now some 14 years removed from his homeland, he finally got back and landed six months prior to the pilgrims. He landed at Plymouth where his village was. And he went to his village and he saw nothing but skulls and bones. The whole village had been wiped out through some kind of a massacre. He was the only Indian that survived out of the whole tribe. And this just so, I mean, you can imagine the hope of coming home and then finding this complete devastation. He began to wander around through the woods where he grew up as a boy and he finally settled with another Indian tribe. And he heard, six months now after he got back, of these pilgrims that landed at Plymouth and how they were on the verge of starvation. And he saw how he could help them and he went and walked into the camp and the pilgrims were so surprised to find 
an Indian who could speak perfect King's English. And he began to teach them how to plant corn and how to fish and basically how to survive. And if it hadn't been for Squanto, the pilgrims, as we know them, would not have celebrated that first Thanksgiving. And yet it took God sovereignly preparing this Indian and him wondering why he was taken and for 15 years away from his homeland and was taught another language he cared nothing about. Why when he came back he was the only one he found out who had survived from his tribe. And yet in retrospect he was able to see that God had preserved him and had saved him out of all of his people that he might be able to save the lives of these pilgrims and so bring the faith of the Lord Jesus to the new world. The story of Joseph, it's real easy to see how that parallels, can't you? Of how Joseph did not understand why God would take him away and have him learn another language and go through all the trials that he went through. And yet in retrospect, he was able to look back and, and tell his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph was able to look back upon all his trials and to see, you know, God meant it for good, even though at the time I was hurting. You know what, it's the exact same thing in your life. And I tell you the story of Squanto to tell you that what the Bible teaches is not just something that's true 3,000 years ago with a Jew in Egypt. But it was true 300 years ago with an Indian at Plymouth. And it's true today with you and me in Denton, Texas. That God works in our lives and uses the evil that people do, the evil that people put upon us, and even, as hard as it is to believe, the evil that we put upon ourselves for good. God is called sovereign and that He is in control of all things. He can use all things for our good. He is sovereign. And that He is able to use the evil of other people for our good. It just baffles my mind how He is as wise, wise enough to do that. And if you and I could only grasp the sovereignty of God like Joseph did, how much less anxiety we would have in our lives. We would be able to look at all the things that God allows to come into our lives with eyes like Joseph. To see, yes, I recognize that as something evil. Yes, this hurts. And yet at the same time, I bow to the sovereignty of God knowing that He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Do you have to understand it? No. In fact, that's, I think, what got Joseph through all these chapters that we've looked at these last few months. Joseph's confidence wasn't in that he understood his circumstances, because he didn't. In fact, his circumstances seemed to totally contradict God's promises to him. His confidence wasn't in his ability to understand his circumstances. His confidence was in his ability to trust God who understood the circumstances. This was Job's whole deal. In the book of Job, you know his story where all these terrible things started happening to him and he's suffering and he's saying, God, why? God, why? And God never answers why. God only reveals that he is in control. And he asks Job all these questions. Where were you when I made the earth? He asks him all these questions about natural things, about deer giving birth, 
about what's under the ocean. All these things that Job can't answer in the natural realm that Job can see. And the implication is God's saying, why are you questioning me in the spiritual realm, an area you can't see? If you can't understand the natural realm, how are you going to understand my sovereignty in the spiritual realm? I think Joseph had grasped that same concept. That though the brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so it is with us. You and I need to look at every single event in our lives, the good and the bad, as from the hand of God. He allowed it that we might be molded according to His purposes. So the hardships that you have, my friend, they are an opportunity for you to demonstrate God's sovereignty and how you live your life in that hardship. And ultimately, I think the greatest hardship is death itself. Our greatest opportunity to demonstrate our faith in a God who is sovereign. And Joseph's death is a great illustration of this. Verse, look at verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Isn't it interesting that Joseph, that Genesis begins in a, in a perfect garden, paradise without sin, and Genesis ends in a coffin in a pagan land, showing that this is not the end of the story, but it goes on. Genesis is kind of a, you might say, an illustration of our lives. That we are not now as we were designed to be. That is, completely perfect in the image of God. Sin has marred that image. And we die and we're put in a coffin awaiting the future. Joseph didn't want to be buried in Egypt. But he, he said, carry my bones up from here. There was a mother who was trying to kind of soften the blow of the death of a cat in a family. A family cat had died. And so she tells her uh, little girl, says, Honey, says, don't cry. Tabby's in a better place. Tabby's in heaven now. And the little girl looked up at the mom and said, Why would God want a dead cat? That little girl had better theology than her mom. Because animals, like cats, don't go to heaven. Now, dogs do. Cats go to the other place. <laughs> but it does no good to try to give a false sense of hope, is my point. To try to just flip a coin and say, well, gee, I hope it lands up heads and we go to heaven. You don't see that kind of waffling in Joseph, you see a man who is confident. You don't see a touch of fear in any of the words that Joseph speaks. He has an unshakable confidence in the future. In fact, when the New Testament tries to 
summarize or epitomize the faith of Joseph. He doesn't pick the fact that he was faithful as a youth, 17-year-old boy. He doesn't pick the fact that he was faithful in spite of his brother selling him into slavery, that he was faithful in spite of Potiphar's wife's temptation, that he was faithful in the prison, that he was faithful in the palace, that he was faithful to forgive his brothers. The great hall of faith, as it's called in Hebrews 11, focuses on Joseph's death as the hallmark to his whole 110-year life of faith. Hebrews 11.22 says this, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Why is that by faith? Because he knew that it wasn't over even when he died. He says, carry my bones up from here. I found it kind of interesting that uh, Frank Sinatra was buried with some of his favorite things. Did you read what he was buried with? He was buried with a bottle of Jack Daniels. He was buried with a, uh, a pack of Camel cigarettes and a Zippo lighter. And he was buried with ten dimes. The dimes, he always carried dimes with him so he could make a phone call if he needed to. Stems back from when his son was kidnapped. But I found that so interesting. I mean, obviously, Sinatra didn't expect to make a phone call in the casket. But these are his favorite things. The Egyptians would do similar to this, except they would be much more extravagant. And not just of when their famous died, but when their royalty died. You uh, undoubtedly are familiar with the semi-recent discovery of King Tut. Here's his throne. Here's his mask. You're all familiar with these. But the sphinxes, or the pyramids that usually surrounded them, were like big tombstones. Under every one of these lies a person. It's like a gravestone, marking particularly royalty. And I say all this to say that Joseph, when he accepted the riches of Egypt, when he accepted the robes and the responsibility of royalty, when it came time to die, he refused all the pomp and circumstance that Egypt had to offer. Joseph could have been buried under a pyramid like this. I mean, we could go to Egypt, we could have gone to Egypt, and seeing the grave of the great Zaphonath Pania, which is his name in uh, Egyptian. Pharaoh gave him that name. We could go there and we could see it. If Joseph had wanted to be buried in Egypt, he would have had a pyramid as big as the rest of them. But instead, he chose to be buried in Canaan. All of you who are my personal friends have undoubtedly heard this joke, so bear with me as I tell it to those of you who haven't heard it. There was a British fighter pilot crash-landed in Germany in World War II. Now, if you haven't heard this joke, that doesn't mean you're not my friend. Don't get it wrong, okay? All right. British fighter pilot crash-lands in Nazi Germany in World War II. He's in the prison for six months, and the, and the, the guy comes in, and he looks, and he says... The, right, the command, German commander comes in and he says, The right leg has gangrene. Must come off. And the pilot says, Mine or yours? He says, Yours. He says, Well, okay. He says, But if you are going to amputate my leg, I need you to bury it in Britain because I love my country. He says, Well, we must ask the Fuhrer. So he goes and he asks the Fuhrer. Comes back and he tells the pilot, The Fuhrer say, Yeah. So they cut his leg off and they bury it in Britain. Six more months go by and the, the commander comes in and he says, the left leg has gangrene, must come off. 
He says, well, okay, I'll let you take my other leg if you'll bury it in Britain with my other leg because I love my country. The commander says, well, we must ask the Fuhrer. So he uh, goes and he asks the Fuhrer, comes back. The Fuhrer say, yeah. So cuts his other leg off, buries it with his other leg in Britain. Six more months go by and the uh, commander comes in and says, the right arm has gangrene, must come off. Man says, good grief. So, okay. And if you've got to take it, I want you to bury it with my legs. He says, well, we must ask the Fuhrer. So goes and asks the Fuhrer, and he's gone for a long time. This time, finally comes back. He says, you, the Fuhrer say, nine. And he says, nine? Well, how come? And the commander says, well, we think you're trying to escape. <laughs> and in a similar sort of way, that's what Joseph had in mind. Not to go piece by piece, but to take all the bones out of the land and bury it in his native country. Why was he so dead set on not having the pyramid? Why was he so dead set on being put in a coffin? Because a pyramid isn't portable. And he didn't want to be buried in Egypt. He wanted to be buried in Canaan. Joseph has lived for 93 of his 110 years in Egypt. So why does he want to be buried in a place that he hardly remembers and the memories that he does have, the last memory that he does have of Canaan is certainly not a pleasant one, of his brother selling him. I mean, God's purpose for Joseph was Egypt. His success has been there. His family has been there. His wife he met there. Why does he want to be taken back and buried in a place that he hasn't been in 93 years? It had nothing to do with the past had everything to do with the future. In the same chapter of the verse that I read regarding Joseph, and speaking of Joseph and a slew of other Old Testament saints, we read this about them. Hebrews 11 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, then down in verse 16 it says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. I found it interesting several months ago to read that there is now available for the Mexicans abroad dual citizenship. You can be now a citizen if you are Hispanic in certain qualifications, of both Mexico and United States. You can have dual citizenship. And the article went on to talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses, and one of the weaknesses that they pointed out is how they would get uh, ribbed at the border. At the border patrols basically asking them, where's your allegiance? So to which side are you really uh, bonded with? In fact, one guy was quoted in the Dallas Morning News. He says, where are their loyalties? Are these imposter citizens? Now, I'm not, I'm not making a judgment at all against those who uh, have this dual citizenship. What's interesting to me is transferring this in the spiritual realm. Because it is a typical thing in human nature to want to have the best of both worlds. To want to try to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the earth as well. 
And yet the Bible tells us clearly that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is not your home. You are a citizen of another place living abroad. And so the question that he asked them, I ask you, where is your loyalty? It is so tempting to want to straddle that border, to have one foot in the country of God and one foot in the country of the world, which in parentheses is the country of the devil. And I tell you what, that line, there is no blur between it. And we like to dance all across that border. And yet, what's true of the Hispanics, we're told, who are going to cross the border, they're going to be ribbed and asked, where's your loyalty? And spiritually speaking, it's true as well. When you spend all your time on the border and none of your time in one or the other, you are really not devoted to either. So, well, today, Lord, I'm going to live for you. It's Sunday. Today I'm going to live for you. But tomorrow, it's Monday, God. I can't, I can't live for you on Monday. I mean, it's Monday. And maybe Tuesday, okay, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but hey, the weekend's coming, Lord. I've got to do my own thing there. You can see the, the craziness of that kind of a logic, and yet we do that. We try to straddle that line. We were told in these verses that all these died in faith without receiving the promises. You see that? Without receiving the promises. God made promises to all of these saints and they died without receiving them. So what, is God a liar? Does He promise and then not fulfill? Does He speak and then not act? No. Because we're told they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. He has prepared a city for them. We're told that they confessed that they were not citizens of this world, but that they were citizens of a better place. In fact, the New Testament goes on to teach us that for a thousand years, everyone who is a believer will reign on this earth, in Canaan, in the promised land, from Jerusalem, with the Lord Jesus Christ, for a thousand years. The dead will be raised Believers will be raised, including Joseph, all the saints of old, including all believers, will live resurrected for a thousand years to reign on this earth with Jesus Christ before he makes the new heaven and the new earth. And I take it that's why Abraham bought this, gra this grave. And that's why he wanted to be buried there. That's why his son Isaac, that's why Jacob, that's why Joseph wanted to be buried there had nothing to do with the past, it had everything to do with the future. That they knew that God's promises extended beyond this grave. So I want to give you a little bit of advice. And if you'll take it, it will greatly shatter any naivete that you have about your spiritual life. And that is that if you expect all that God has promised to the believer to be fulfilled in this life, you're going to be disappointed. Because the ultimate fulfillment of the things that God has promised to believers comes when we die or when Christ returns at any moment. That is the ultimate. Until then, we are to live like the Lord Jesus who on this earth hurt though he was sinless. He died though he was sinless. 
but because he was faithful, God gave him the name that is above every name. First came the cross, then came the crown. First came the groan, then came the glory. And we, like Jesus, are to take up our cross daily and follow. So if we're expect all, to expect all the prosperity and the, the riches that God has promised us to be fulfilled in this life, we're going to be disappointed. And look at the life of the apostles, and every one of them died a poor martyr. The Lord Jesus being no exception. How are we to expect that God will make an exception to us? Jesus said, Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. That statement is made in Matthew and Mark and Luke. All three of those books, Jesus makes that statement. That if you try to hang on to your life and straddle that spiritual fence, the life that God intends for you is thwarted. You lose it. But if you live as a living sacrifice faithful, realizing that the hardships that God allows are opportunities for you to display your faith. Because you realize that God's fulfillment for you comes beyond death. And so if you're not looking for all of it to happen now, and you realize, Lord, it's all going to happen then, that now when the hardships come, you can almost expect it and anticipate it. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. And yet, we don't want to believe that. We're going to think in this world, we're going to have, everything's going to go great. And it isn't. It didn't go great for Jesus, and he was perfect. How much less for we who are sinners? Don't expect it now. Expect it then. And then it will be wonderful. No tears, no crying, no death, no pain. We are promised. Dying with unfulfilled promises can be reconciled. Unfulfilled promises can be reconciled with death, maybe I should say, because we know that God's promises extend beyond this life. Joseph understood that, and his fathers before him understood that. That's why they didn't want to be buried any place but in the land of promise, because they knew there was a future. The New Testament gives us the great promise, my friends, that there is nothing, height or depth, angels nor demons, anything, even death, cannot separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Even death, even death cannot separate you from all that God has promised from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So view your hardships as opportunities to demonstrate faith in a sovereign God. He uses all the hardships for your good. And when you die, if you are given the benefit of a deathbed, I want to challenge you to let your words be words of faith. That you look back on this life not with disappointment, but having anticipated the hardship that the life has given you, you are able to look forward and let death be the ultimate demonstration of your faith in a God who is sovereign. And the promises that He has given you, when you die, you will receive them. If you wanted to summarize the whole life of Joseph, I think you could do it in this chapter. So it's no wonder that the New Testament did that. Joseph's life of faith believed that there was more beyond the grave. And that is to be our life too. Let's pray together.
Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God and that we are not at the mercy of the devil, that we are not at the mercy of those who would want to do evil to us, but rather because you are sovereign. Every bit of evil that comes our way has to pass your clearance. Every bit of evil that comes our way, you have allowed that you may use it for our greater good and your greater glory. That being the case, Lord, help us to view those hardships as opportunities to display our faith in you, who are a sovereign God. And help us, Lord, to use our death for that very thing, to tell other people we are expecting, not in this life, all that you've given us, but we are expecting with eagerness and with confidence that which we will have when we awaken in glory. I pray, Lord, for the person who is here today and is banking on a long life to think about whether or not they want to place their faith in Jesus. Oh, may they not boast in tomorrow. I pray that you might today convict their heart to place their faith in Jesus who died for their sins, that they might know the forgiveness and not wallow in the mire of guilt like these brothers did for all those years, but to enjoy the freedom and the joy that there is in peace with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you all. We're dismissed.